Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Today, I'm going to share with you on the book of John, the book of love. (laughs) Um, I... You know, I don't know what you think of when you think of John. If you think of the Gospel of John, like the first thing I think of is the scripture, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Wait a way to start. And this morning as I was preparing, I... God reminded me of something. He reminded me of my little self when I was about, I think I, maybe I was eight years old. And I grew up in a home where we, we attended a church, but we, we weren't, we weren't Christians. We, we, it was just something you did. You just went to church on Sunday. At least I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but in the summers, summers were endless. And uh, they seemed really long because when we were kids, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't do anything. We didn't have TV or video games. We went outside and threw rocks and played in trees. But there was a lady, a neighbor, who um, invited us to come to a vacation Bible school. And it was just a group of us kids sitting on her front lawn. And it probably was only maybe an hour, maybe a half hour. This morning, as I remembered that, I remembered I memorized that scripture as a little girl. And I didn't get saved until numerous years later. But you know what? God puts a seed in your heart. And then he grows it. So I'm going to do a shameless plug (laughs) for the children. (laughs) Because Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. And it's not just your own children. It's the children of this family. So if if that tugs on your heart, sign up for children's ministry. Because you just don't know. Like someday that little kid could be preaching to a whole group of people, which is amazing. So the book of John. So who wrote it? Well, um, the book of John is not actually signed. He didn't write, I wrote this book. Um, he He doesn't. But in the course of him talking, he, um, in the book, he mentions like lots of the disciples, but he never mentions John, but he refers to um, John in um, John 13, 23. He says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Okay, well, it, that's kind of a big clue, right? But there is a, there's numerous um, uh, numerous there's numerous times in the book that he refers to things that he would have had to been there to see, and because he he talks about a first account of it, and um, and then numerous and so it rules out a lot of people and it it kind of skinnies the the pool of who it could be. But then where, when it was written, it, was, it wasn't written until um, 85 to 90 AD. And so the only one that was left was John, right? So he had watched all the other disciples be martyred. He was still there. And so we know that by 150 AD, it was widely accepted that he, John, the son of Zebedee, was the author. Now, 
John is a radically different man at this point. In, um, he and his brother James were two of the disciples. He was the youngest of the disciples. And uh, Mark 3.17 records the two as being sons of thunder, right? So they were kind of like, well, what, what would that look like? Well, we get a clue in uh, Luke 9 when um, Jesus had sent messenger, they had gone to a Samaritan village to get things ready, but the people did not welcome Jesus. So when the disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them, right? Sounds like a thunderous reply, right? And Jesus turns and rebukes them because that wasn't his way, right? But the rest of the book, we, we learn that John is not quite the same, right? He's not all fire and brimstone. Um, John's gospel is unique compared to the other gospels. So we have four and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they consider the, the synoptic gospels. Okay. So because they're similar in how they were written, they're more of a historical biography, which was normal for the time they wrote to give an accurate account of Jesus's life. But John comes in much later and he writes his gospel or his account, and he really wants to hammer home that who Jesus was. He was the son of God. He already knows the other three gospels are in wide circulation. So he doesn't, he doesn't even, um, there's things in there that he doesn't even include. He doesn't include any parables, not a one. He, um, he does include the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, he, only has two miracles that are similar to the other ones, the one where Jesus walked on water and where he fed 5,000. He also is the only one to record him, uh, Jesus turning water into wine, the conversation Jesus had with a Samaritan woman, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Um, <clears throat> so um, yet he still brings the good news, right? So the purpose of the book, different from the others, is to really focus on Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. <clears throat> now, we learn this purpose in verse 20. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So his purpose is clear. Now, John's book is been said, and I couldn't find the author of the quote, but lots of theologians quote this. It says that it is a pool which babes can wade in and elephants can swim. Because it's basic enough for a new believer to read through and go, oh, this is really good. But it's also good enough for theologians to deep dive into it because he has so much to say. Um, and this book would have been received. He wrote it to encourage a very disheartened church who's being persecuted, fed to the lions, dispersed throughout the land. And this would have been an encouragement to grow in their love. And that is the same encouragement we can receive today. Amen? 
So the beginning of the book starts with a poem. And so this poem is from verses 1 through 18 in chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, but it is, it is much like um, a summary of the whole book, okay? If you go out, you can look for a synopsis of things. Or I like to think of it as, have you ever read a, like a scientific article? They have the abstract at the beginning that tells you everything that's going to be in the paper. That's what this is. And um, so he starts and a book ends this poem with, in the beginning was the word and the word was God, was with God and the word was God. Very clear, right? And then he ends it with, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the father has made him known. That's what he's going to talk about. And so we go further and we find in the middle of this, in those bookends, we find this passage that basically outlines, if this is his outline for the whole book of John, it says he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So he starts by saying he was in the world. That's the introduction to his book. And then he says, he came to that which was his own, but he but his own did not receive him. Part of his, uh, the, the first part of the book is his public ministry. It was, and most of it was to the Jewish people who did not receive him. They rejected him. Um, and then he, the second part of the book is his private ministry, which is um, to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And then he ends with, we have seen his glory. We're to be witnesses to him, right? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So believers then become witnesses. And that's how the book is outlined. Um, here's just a little outline for you. So the first 12 chapters include the introduction and his public ministry, cover three and a half years. The second part of the book is thir chapters 13 through 21. It covers one week. It is his private ministry and then the conclusion of the book, okay? I like an outline when I'm reading a book. <laughs> so, um, so something interesting that John does, he uses seven. He uses sevens all over the place. And you're like, okay, that's really interesting, Kathy. But the thing is, the book of Genesis is written this way as well. It circles around sevens. There's seven days of creation right? They had to let the land rest for seven years. There are seven feasts that God establishes for his people to um, celebrate. And actually the opening, um, the opening of Genesis is seven words. And the reason for the sevens is the seven symbolizes completeness and wholeness. It can also, when you do one through seven, show a progression to the completeness, 
John uses sevens all over the place. He mentions seven men, seven women, seven disciples, seven witnesses, seven personal testimonies, seven feasts, seven signs, seven references to his hour, seven discourses. There's more. I didn't write them all down. (laughs) And he wrote seven, Jesus said, uh, seven metaphors of I am. And that's what we're going to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, get ready. Hold on to your seat. So he used the word I am a lot. Um, But the seven metaphors, uh, and we're going to talk about, we're going to deep dive into those. But I am would have been very significant to to the people that he was talking to and he was writing to. Because if we go back to the Old Testament and we look in Exodus and we see Moses sees a burning bush, right? Like he's killed this Egyptian. His people are in slavery. It's all bad. He goes out to the wilderness. He's a shepherd. He's walking around and he sees this burning bush and he goes closer because it's like, but it's not being consumed. What's the deal with this? And then God talks to him. And he says, I want you to go in back into Egypt and get my people free. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. And Moses actually says yes, reluctantly, but he says yes. But then he says, who am I supposed to say sent me? Like, I'm just going to go, hey, I'm here. You know, I'm going to set you all free. (laughs) Like what is, you know, Moses doesn't have any authority. And God says, you tell them that I am who I am. And you tell the Israelites, I am sent me to you. Now, I am, we translate it to Yahweh, which actually the original would be Y-H-W-H, no vowels. We don't know how they pronounced it because at some point they stopped. They stopped saying his name because it was so sacred, but they knew that Jewish people would know when you said, I am, you were saying God's name, right? And so um, he, so John is making a point. He uses, um, he goes and says, okay, Jesus said, I am, and then he uses a metaphor. So he um, bookends them with, or, or they kind of coincide with different miracles. Now, um, first of all, I want to make a point that uh, what a metaphor is, just in case people are unclear of a metaphor. So a metaphor is a, a representation or a symbol of something like life is a highway. Okay. Well, life is not a highway, but we've heard that before. Or her eyes were like diamonds, right? Um, uh, the snow is a white blanket, Okay, well, the snow is not very warm, so I'm not sure that that, but it looks that way, right? So it is a picture, a word picture to help you understand what, what, the, what he's talking about. And these coincide with miracles or signs. Now, John specifically does not call them miracles. He calls them signs. And the reason he uses it in the original Greek, it's samion. And that's because they were indications to look. They were supposed to point you to something. 
they were, and they were also meant to prompt you to do something. The same way, the same word is used when, um, in Exodus, when the plagues were, were happened, when God sent the plagues, they were signs. They were signs to say, Pharaoh, look, you need to let these people go. So the, John uses that term, and, and it's so that we can understand that we're supposed to do something or respond. I love this. It's a kind of a long quote. I want to read it to you. It's, called by, it's by Robert Plummer. A sign is something that Jesus does that points to his true identity. And if you simply understood it on the material level of a wonder work or a miracle, then you've missed the point. Whether it is changing the water into wine, whether it's feeding the crowd with bread miraculously, whether it's healing the blind man, throughout John, John sees that these are not just wonder works, but these are things that you, if you see through them as God intends, you see the true revelation of Jesus's identity. He is the bread of life, that he is the one who's come to give us sight, that he brings us the new wine of the coming age, and we celebrate that. So we're going to, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so the miracles in themselves, yes, they benefited people, but the point was, look, here is the Messiah. Amen? So the first one we're going to talk about is I am the bread of life. So to paint the picture, just so this one day, and I love, I love John because he, he does go chronologically. Thank you so much. So he says this feast, and then he says this day, and then he says the next day. And so you know, like how things are going. So Jesus feeds the 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Most people are familiar with that story, right? Well, the very next day, those same people come looking for Jesus and they call out to him, hey, Jesus. And Jesus answers them with this. He says, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures for eternal life which the son of man will give you for on him, God, the father has placed his seal of approval. Then there's some discourse and they're like, well, Moses gave us manna from heaven. And, and which is interesting because they're giving Moses credit for something God did. So think about that when he, they're, you know, they're like, oh, show us another sign. Give us more food. Right. And Jesus combats that with, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. They reject him again. All those who the father gives me will come to me. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. He wants to make sure that you are, have your fill of him so that you have eternal life. You know, isn't the world searching, you know? 
There's so many people who are empty. But even we can feel an emptiness. Do you feel like there's something that you haven't fulfilled or you have a longing for something? Jesus is the only one that can satisfy. So I have a question for you today. Will you let Jesus satisfy your hunger? Then he continues, and he's, he's he, um, a little later, he's sitting on the steps of the synagogue, and, he's, um, and it's morning. It says it's daybreak. And so you, you can only imagine you're seeing the sun rise, right? And it's just the light that comes. Oh, thank you, Patty Rhodes, for always posting sunrises. I love them. Um, and Jesus is teaching the people, and he says, I am the light of the world. Oh, sorry. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what he's, what he's actually hearkening to is a reference in Isaiah 9, 2, which says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Isaiah is looking forward, saying, when Jesus comes, the light will be here, right? And what happens when it's dark? Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes things are not good in the dark, right? But in the light of day, ah, there's so much more hope, right? And Jesus is saying he is the light who's come. And so in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the light, over and over again. In, in Psalms 27, it says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, right? He comes to bring, to cast away the darkness. You know, darkness can't stay where there's light, right? Like if you take a flashlight and you shine it, the darkness is gone, right? And so we want God to light up the dark areas in our life. How do we respond to that message? Are there areas in your life that you are trying to keep hidden from God? I know for years I did. I had my, I had my church self, and then I had my other self. That's a hard way to live. But when you bring those things to God and you let the light shine on it? Do you know that he doesn't condemn you? Do you know the difference between condemnation and conviction? If I'm doing something wrong and I lived this way, I, I had a secret sin and I just felt so much condemnation. The enemy was going, oh, you're a terrible person. You can't get into the he you know, into heaven. God doesn't love you. And he would whisper these things in my ear because I, he just wanted me to feel bad and he wanted me to run from God. But conviction is when the Holy Spirit goes, hey, hey, there's hope. Do you want out of that situation? Do you want the enemy off your back? Bring that thing to the light. If you're struggling with condemnation, Man, run to Jesus and go, hey, look, here it is. He already knows. 
Spoiler alert. I, I don't know if you knew that, but <laughs> he already knows. He already knows. But when you bring it to him, he's like, oh, let me take care of that. Let me clean you up. Let me get rid of that thing for you. And it's hope, right? So my question to you today, will you let his light shine into your dark places? Now, the next, then between this light and the next metaphor that Jesus uses, he heals a blind man. I'm so stoked about this story. I love this story. I'm telling you, this story is so good. So what happens is Jesus is walking along with his, you know, people. And this blind man calls out that he wants to be healed. And, and they, they're like, oh, is he blind because, you know, he sinned or something? And Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. Another sign, right? They're pointing to what's going what's gonna to happen. Darkness and light. He just told that story about, dark, about light. He's the light, right? He's going to bring light into it. So he heals the guy. He spits in some mud, puts it on his face, says, go wash in this pool. And so he goes and does that. The Pharisees are furious, furious. They haul the guy in and says, who did this? He goes, I don't know. I, you know, it was just, I, he was blind. Hello. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know who did it. And so, so he, they let him go and then they drag his parents in and they're like, Hey, who, who did this to your son? Was he blind? They're like, yeah, he was blind. Well, how come he can see? I don't know. Now you need to understand. We do not have a concept of this. We don't have a concept of this at all. The synagogue, the Pharisees, they were their life. If you were Jewish, you didn't want to get kicked out of your community. The, the community was more, I mean, I, I wish we understood how close their community was. We, we would benefit so much if we could be as close as that community was. So they were afraid. And so they didn't say anything. So they hauled the guy in a second time. And this is so amazing. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind and they said, give glory to God by telling the truth. You better not lie to us. We know this man is a sinner. And the guy says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Amen. But he goes on. This is the part I'm stoked about. The guy said, the Pharisees say, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've already told you. And you did not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his followers too? <laughs> they hurled insults at him, okay? They're like, oh, this fellow, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses. But for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answers him. Huh. He says, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from? Yet he opened my eyes. We don't know. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Yet he listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could have done nothing. Whoa. <laughs> I'm like, 
The blind guy knew what he was talking about. And you know what the Pharisees did? They threw him out. That word means they excommunicated him. He's got nothing. He's got no family now. He's got no community. So Jesus comes to him. He, he finds out what happened. And he comes to him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he responds, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And the man said, I believe. And he worshiped him. He now has a family. Amen. Isn't that good? Oh, so good. So good. And right after this, Jesus begins to teach the people again. And he uses language they're very familiar with. He talks about a sheep pen or a sheepfold. And so this is what they typically looked like. And there would be a gate, like that little opening. And so it was either a gate or a door. You could call it whatever you want. But sometimes there would be a gatekeeper there because many shepherds would bring their sheep in. But he basically was like, yeah, you belong and you don't belong. Okay. And so Jesus says, I am the gate of the sheep, right? In John 10, he says, verily, verily, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and life to the full. What, I mean, the, the, um, the blind man, would, who's now seeing, would be sitting there going, oh, I know who he is. I get to go, the, 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 you get to go home. He gets to be in the sheepfold, right? Because Jesus is the gate. You go through Jesus, you get to come home, right? Have you walked through that door? Have you walked through the door that leads to eternal life? Is Jesus your savior? Is he the one that let you in? Are you, that, that, that's the only way in, right? And then he continues and he talks about being a good shepherd. Again, language they are very familiar with. The, the Old Testament is full of imagery about a shepherd being a good leader. <laughs> David, right? And, the most, uh, and, and we, we know the most famous scriptures, you know, Psalm uh, 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. You know, Ezekiel 34, uh, Ezekiel is reprimanding, God is reprimanding the people who are the leaders for not taking care of the people. And he says in verse 23, and I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. Even my servant, David, he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. He's foretelling of Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, that word good means intrinsically beautiful, valuable, virtuous. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the one that was foretold. 
He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Isn't that what Jesus did? A hired hand is not a shepherd. It's not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Hello, Pharisees. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Still in his public ministry, he's declaring what he's going to do. He's going to lay down his life. And the blind man sitting there would have gone, oh, he's the one. He's the shepherd. Have the greatest gift. He gave the greatest gift so that we might have life and life to the full. Amen. So is he your shepherd? You know, a shepherd leads, but we get a choice whether to follow or not. So my question for you is, are you following Jesus? In every part of your life, are you following him? Jesus says, I am, right? He is God. He laid down his life for you. He's an, God is an all or nothing kind of God. It's not just a little bit, not sometimes. It's all or nothing. So what will you do? Well, stand up if you would, and let's respond for a minute here. Kathy asked us some good questions this morning. Jesus said, I'm the bread of the life, the bread of life. Will you let him satisfy your hunger? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Will you let his light shine in your dark places? Jesus said, I'm the gate for the sheep. Have you walked through the door to eternal life? And Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. Is he your shepherd? Are you following? So close your eyes for a minute and let those questions simmer for a sec. Maybe one bubbles up and you go, I need to respond to that one. Maybe he's not where you go when you're hungry. Maybe you have some dark places that you hide from him. Maybe you haven't come through the door into the sheepfold. Maybe you're not following him with a certain part of your life. Like I said earlier, um, he loves you enough to bring that to the surface so you can respond. It's an invitation to come into relationship with him.
Lord, thank you for what you're revealing to us. Thank you for an invitation to come to you with what's not right. Thank you, Jesus, that you're a Savior who puts things right. That your death on the cross, your body, your blood, your resurrection that proves your victory over sin and death shows that you're, you've come to put things right. Those who follow you have a hope that someday you'll return to put things right once and for all. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that would convict us, which means point out what's not right and give us the opportunity to bring it to you so you can make it right right now. Thank you that you have the power to do it. Amen.